This episode of Virtual Criminality contains spoilers for the video game Slender the Arrival. Welcome to Virtual Criminality. I'm Ian Higton and in this podcast I combine two of my greatest passions, video gaming and true crime, into one gruesome whole. Each episode of Virtual Criminality will focus on a different video game villain and I'll be presenting their fictional stories as fact in the style of a true crime podcast. That means along with all the usual gory serial killer stuff that you'd expect from a real world true crime podcast, there'll also be times when we get to explore not only the fantastical but the supernatural too. So if like me you're into true crime, video game theories and creepypastas, you my friends have come to the right place. On the last episode of Virtual Criminality, we learned all about the historical hauntings of the small Canadian town of Oakside, Alberta. And we also heard about a harrowing curse that has blighted the local Matheson family for generations. But in order to fully convince you that these events actually took place, it's finally time to talk about the solid, undeniable and irrefutable proof that shocked the world when it came to light in 2013. This is proof that's easily accessible to those who know where to look for it, and it's thanks to the availability of this proof that the monster that once stalked the Mathesons has now been studied, verified and given a name. And so, with all that said and done, welcome to Virtual Criminality and part two of the story of the Slender Man. October 26, 2013 started off as just another normal day for Alex Tinter, a telecoms engineer and longtime resident of Oakside. Alex's day-to-day job usually involved installing fibre optic cabling and broadband networks for the small businesses and new build housing estates that were popping up in the area. But several reports of radio and mobile signal outages overnight meant that on that morning, Alex had been assigned to investigate those faults at their source, the Oakside radio tower. Due to its close proximity to the Rockies, Oakside was the perfect base of operations for the telecommunications company that Alex worked for, as the radio tower, built high up on the mountainside to maximise coverage, was easily accessible from the town. As Alex drove up the long dirt road leading from town to the foot of the tower, it quickly became apparent that there had been a large forest fire in the area. Blackened, burnt trees and smouldering grass covered the mountainside and as Alex turned a corner and brought his truck to a stop, he spotted the fire's source. The large brick warehouse that once stood at the tower's base was now nothing more than a smoking ruin. The radio tower itself was a rather ugly structure to begin with, a bare metal obelisk made out of steel lattice that the locals took to calling the Eye of Sauron, due to the ever-present bright red glow of the aircraft warning beacon that sat atop it. Now though, it was even more unsightly, as its lower half was charred and covered with melted wiring and frazzled electronics. The majority of the fire damage, however, was located in the warehouse itself. The wooden front door was completely destroyed, burnt away until only the ash-covered hinges were left. Parts of the roof had caved in and some of the warehouse's outer walls had completely collapsed. Alex knew that this was too big of a job for one person to fix, so he called his boss back in Oakside to give him an update on the situation and then he made his way around the base of the tower, taking stock of all the damaged components. 
It was there on the ashen floor amongst the debris from one of the collapsed warehouse walls that Alex discovered something strange. A black Canon Vixia R40 camcorder, seemingly untouched by the flames, was laying on its side with its fold-out LCD viewing screen hanging open, as if it had been dropped by someone mid-recording. Alex picked the camera up and attempted to turn it on, but a quick press of the power button did little but display a red battery symbol on the screen, signifying that the camera was out of charge. So Alex returned to his van, placed the camera in his kit bag and continued to survey the site. Later that night, after having returned from the radio tower, Alex once more decided to see if he could get the camera to work. His theory was that it may contain proof of an arson attack, and if it did, he could then give it to the police. So he hunted around for a compatible charging cable. Unable to find one, Alex was about to give up when his son, Colin, asked to check the camera, and with a quick flick of the memory card cover slot, out popped a 32GB SanDisk memory card. Colin, an 11th grader at high school at the time, was heavily invested in computer studies, and he had exactly the right kind of equipment needed to be able to transfer the files from the card to his home computer. So he booted up his PC, plugged a memory card reader into a USB port, and began to browse the file directories that appeared on his desktop. Saved onto the card were a collection of video files, which, when watched in order, ended up containing around two hours' worth of recordings. The pair sat in almost complete silence as the files played out, and what they saw was so disturbing that as soon as the final file had ended, Alex instantly contacted the police and then jumped straight into his van and quickly drove to the Oakside Police Service. Once there, he handed in both the camera, the card and gave a lengthy statement. But unbeknownst to him, during their initial watch, Colin had actually copied the videos to his desktop and at that very moment, he was hurriedly uploading the footage to a newly launched file-sharing site called Mega. Now, we know all of this thanks to Colin's subsequent posts on the R Paranormal subreddit, in which he not only provided download links for the files, but also a detailed description of how they were found. Before I go into what is in these files, however, it's important to state that the footage in them has been analysed time and time again by multiple experts in the fields of both video editing and image manipulation, and each time they've all come back with the same results. There is no sign of tampering, video effects, or any other kind of manipulation to be found in any of the files. Everything shown in the videos that Alex found is genuine, unedited and indisputable documentation of a supernatural being and the deaths or mysterious disappearances of at least three people. The footage on the first file, titled MVI 0908, begins as the person holding the camera, Lauren Hadley, a realtor in her early 20s, climbs out of her car to survey a tree which has fallen over and blocked the dirt road leading to her destination. According to the official police records, Lauren was on her way to help her childhood friend, Kate Hayes, sell her house and the surrounding land, which was situated in a highly sought-after location right next to Oakside Park. And so, armed with a camcorder so that she could film the house and its surroundings for a virtual tour that would then be hosted on her company's website, Lauren made her way from Calgary back to her hometown of Oakside. 
Although the rest of the dirt road was now inaccessible by car due to the blockage, it was only a short walk to Kate's from where the tree had fallen. So, camera still rolling, Lawrence sets off down the road at a leisurely pace. By the time that Lauren reaches Kate's house, the sun had all but disappeared behind the Rocky Mountains, leaving the large four-bedroom house and its perimeter wall gently illuminated by what little moonlight was able to escape through the thickly clouded sky. As Lauren enters the front garden of the property and passes by an old swing set, what strikes you about the house is just how dark it seems, considering someone was supposed to be home. Apart from a couple of flickering security lights flanking the garage and front door and a low glow coming from one of the upstairs windows, most of the house was shrouded in darkness. Next, Lauren approaches the front door and opens it, revealing the hallway and wooden staircase beyond. In front of Lauren is a backpack lying on the floor at the bottom of the stairs, but she ignores that and calls out for her friend, before heading to the left of the staircase and through a door that leads to the living room. It's almost pitch black in that room, save for a low light coming from a toppled standing lamp, so Lauren quickly makes her way through to the adjoining music room and then on into the kitchen. Upon entering the kitchen, which is much better lit than the rest of the rooms, Lauren soon spots a flashlight standing on a table at the far side of the room, which she then promptly grabs and switches on. The light from the flashlight instantly illuminates the dark corners of the room and Lauren shines it around to get her bearings before the beam lands on an old memorial card for Kate's mother, Beth Hayes, that was lying on the table. Now, if you're wondering why the surname Hayes sounds familiar to you, it's because Kate Hayes is a direct descendant of Henry Hayes, who lived on the Matheson farmstead during the events that I covered in the first part of this episode. Henry remarried after his wife Ada and son Norman died in the Hayes house fire, and he and his new wife ended up having a daughter called Beth, who was Kate's mother. It's not known why Kate had left this memorial card on the kitchen table, but the year of Beth's funeral is listed on it as 2009, so due to the length of time between that date and the house move, it's unlikely that these two events were linked in any way. After reading it, Lauren places the card back on the table and then continues to scan the kitchen for clues as to Kate's whereabouts. As she walks by the refrigerator, she points her camera at an old magnetic whiteboard which had a hurried list written on it. The list reads, flashlight, batteries, extra tapes, lighter and kerosene. Then below that list are the words, lock the house, which are double underlined and circled angrily in black pen. It's likely that Lauren had no idea what that list was referring to, but after knowing what had happened in part one of this episode to both the Matheson family and to Kate's ancestors, it certainly raises a lot of red flags for me. Next, Lauren approaches the kitchen phone and activates the answering machine. Here's the audio from that moment in the video file, in which you can hear the single message left on that machine. Zero new messages. One old message... Hey Kate, see her again. I hope everything's okay. I know there's been a lot to take in and wrap your head around. It'll be good when Lauren gets there to help you sell the house. Take a little load off your mind. Give me a call when you get the chance and we can talk. Take care. Press 1 to delete. The man on the recording there introduced himself as CR, but his real name was Carl Ross. Carl, another Oakside local and postman by trade, became friends with Kate in their early teens, a couple of years after Lauren had moved away to Calgary. 
In later interviews, friends of the pair have stated that, while they had never had a full-on romantic relationship, as the pair got older, they did date for a bit. Although it didn't last for very long, as it was clear that Carl had stronger feelings for Kate, while she only saw him as a friend. After Lauren has finished listening to the message, she makes her way back into the living room, which she then inspects with the flashlight, passing the beam over the toppled standing lamp before stopping it on a flat-screen TV that has been knocked over backwards so that its top half is leaning against the wall. It's clear that these are signs of some kind of disturbance, and Lauren must have thought so too, as she then calls out for Kate once more, asking this time if she's okay. She then spots a note on the table, which she films with the camera. It's written on headed notepaper that has thank you printed on it in a fancy cursive font. Below that, Kate writes, I can't thank you enough for coming all this way to help me out. It's been a pretty rough road trying to sell this old place. I wish I had turned to you sooner. You have no idea how happy I'll be once this is all behind me. Love you always, Kate. That note seems so cheerful and out of odds with the weirdly dark vibes of the seemingly empty house, but it appears to calm Lauren's nerves slightly as she pockets the letter and then slowly walks out of the living room and into the hallway. Once again, she starts to call out Kate's name, but this time her voice quickly trails off and she comes to a stop before spinning around to point the camera and the flashlight at the wall behind her. There, on the plain white wall above the living room doorway, are what appear to be crude charcoal drawings of around ten trees and one humanoid figure which has a small triangular torso and oversized arms and legs. In the video, you can hear Lauren mutter, what the f*** under her breath, before she turns, takes a quick look inside the dining room and then heads up the staircase in a hurry. Turning right at the top of the stairs, Lauren then makes a beeline for Kate's room, which is situated at the end of a long corridor, and as she rushes along, the plush grey carpet in the hallway muffles the sound of her panicked footsteps. That soft flooring isn't enough to quieten every sound though, and as Lauren swings open the door to Kate's bedroom and lays her eyes on what's inside, the sound of her gasp is almost deafening. Lauren's shock is visible in the movement of the camera as it darts around Kate's room, every inch of which is covered with hundreds of manically scribbled drawings, just like the ones found above the living room door. This time there's way more variety though, and along with more drawings of trees and that same strange figure that we saw before, there are also written warnings and questions. Multiple A4-sized pages either laying on the floor or pasted to the walls have the words WHAT IS IT scratched onto them in large capital letters. Others say CAN YOU SEE IT or STOP IT NOW, while many more notes also contain drawings of the Oakside radio tower. Each one of these is slightly different to the last, except for one minor similarity. The word SAFE scrawled upon them in large letters, with an arrow pointing towards the tower. The most troubling discovery of all, though, was that the window at the back of Kate's room was shattered and there were shards of glass covering the bedroom floor below it. The presence of glass inside the room meant that it was almost as if someone or something had smashed its way into Kate's room from outside of the house and then somehow snatched her away. Suddenly, a horrifying scream erupts from somewhere outside of the house. Here's a clip of that section of the footage so you can get a good idea of just how loud that scream was. Hearing this spine-chilling noise, Lauren rushes to the broken bedroom window and looks out, scanning the darkness with her flashlight in the direction of where the scream came from. 
There, at the back of the garden, was a large open gate, and just beyond that, a small dirt path which led down the hill and straight towards the entrance to Oakside Park. Audibly frightened, Lauren leans out of the window to shout her friend's name at the top of her voice one last time, but when she hears nothing but silence in reply, she turns and leaves the room at speed, heading out of the house and down the path towards the origin of the scream. So I just want to pause here for a moment or so to draw your attention to something that happens during those moments in Kate's room that is very easy to miss, but is also very concerning indeed. Although many people have analysed these video files over the years, this one detail wasn't discovered until a couple of months after the originals were uploaded to the internet by Colin. And when it's pointed out to you and you actually see it, it's absolutely chilling. As Lauren leans out of the broken bedroom window to call out to her friend, if you pause the footage and look to the left-hand side of the picture, towards where the red glow of the Oakside radio tower is visible on the horizon, there, silhouetted against the moonlit grey clouds, you can clearly see a gigantic humanoid figure staring back at the house. When the video is playing, this figure doesn't seem to move, it doesn't make a noise, and it just kind of stands there menacingly with its unnaturally long arms hanging down by the sides of its spindly body. Obviously, there has been a lot of discussion about this sighting since it was first publicised on internet forums, but the most important point, I think, was made by a Reddit user named Fair132, who used geographical data from the area to try and establish a rough estimate of the creature's size. According to Fair132, the ridgeline that this thing was standing on was over one kilometre away from the house. So, judging by its size in the frame relative to that distance, this means that this monstrosity could have been anything from between 30 to 40 feet tall. But that raises the question of why it was there in the first place. Why was this thing watching over Kate's house specifically? Well, with the disappearance and presumed murder of Charlie and the death of his father Charles that I spoke about in part one of this episode, the Matheson family bloodline was now completely broken. So who then was left for this thing to torment but Kate, the last remaining descendant of the Hayes family? This really is the only theory that makes any sense out of what has happened and what will happen in what the internet has come to call the Slenderman videos. The next file, titled MVI0909, starts abruptly as Lauren makes her way along the path behind the house, and it remains relatively uneventful, until, after about 15 minutes of walking, she finally arrives at the entrance to Oakside Park. The old wooden building that appears out of the gloom in front of her once served as the public entryway to the park, and it was still standing despite not being used in any official capacity for over 15 years. The main roadway that ran through the middle of the building split the wooden structure into two halves, which were joined together by a large slanted roof, and this opening was now securely blocked by a tangle of old wire mesh fences. Back in the day, this would have been where cars and pedestrians would have stopped in order to pay the park's entrance fees, before passing on through to the camping grounds that lay beyond. But, as it was now inaccessible, Lauren starts inspecting the exterior of the building, searching for another way in. She soon finds an open door on the right-hand side, and so, tentatively, she walks through and enters a room that is in an obvious state of disrepair. It's mostly empty aside from a couple of old, battered wooden chairs and various pieces of junk and rubbish that are strewn across the floor. 
After finding nothing of interest, Lauren then walks through the blocked entrance area and into the left-hand building, which is where the management office for the fire service used to be located. Once again, Lauren sweeps the room with her flashlight, passing by old rusted barrels, lockers and filing cabinets before something at the back of the room makes her stop dead in her tracks. Painted across the back wall in large white capital letters are three simple words. Find me, Lauren. Once again, Lauren audibly gasps and she rushes forwards to inspect the writing in more detail. And there, just below the painted plea, she finds an open notebook, laying covered down on a desk next to the wall. While most of its pages look to have been torn out, a couple are still intact. And so Lauren leans in with her camera and begins filming the disturbing entries that have been etched onto the lined sheets of paper in black biro. He came for me, the first page, numbered 61, reads. The word he is heavily underlined here. Why didn't I listen? He was right. He said this would happen. Help me. The words are written in a frenzied mixture of lower and uppercase letters, and there's some kind of doodle in the centre of the page that almost looks like someone had attempted to draw a stickman, before suddenly erasing the image in an explosion of scribbles that stretch out across the paper in random directions. The only other remaining page in the notebook, numbered 70, contains words written in a similarly panicked style. They read, Need CR. He knows how to end this. Come find me. Don't let him in. After filming this page, Lauren slams the book back down onto the table and the video file ends. File MVI 0910 begins as Lauren leaves the creepy confines of the empty office, and the crunchy, echoey sounds of her footsteps on the wooden floorboards are soon replaced by the loud chirps of crickets, the rustle of the wind blowing through the trees, and the distant sound of running water from the nearby falls that help to fill Oakside Lake. Here's a quick clip from that moment so you can get an idea of just how isolated from civilization Lauren was at that point. Lauren calls out to Kate again, but her cries are met with nothing except for more background noise from the deserted park. And so she continues onwards, entering the main section of the park through a gap in an old mesh fence. At this point, the only light source other than that from the flashlight in Lauren's hands is the pale grey glow from a cloud-covered moon, and the darkness of her surroundings makes her descent down a steep hill seem rather perilous. Partway down, Lauren stops and scans her surroundings, as if she'd heard a noise from behind her, but after a couple of seconds, she then continues on downwards, calling out for Kate once again. As she reaches the bottom of the hill, Lauren then jumps down a short rocky outcrop, where she lands with a grunt at the base of an old Coleman Mining Company storage shelter. Made up of a large flat concrete base with high metal support beams on each corner and a corrugated iron roof, this open structure was used to hold shipping containers, building materials and storage barrels for the construction of the company's underground mining facility that was built into the side of the mountain range located near the border of the park. The original Coleman mines, constructed close to the Oakside Radio Tower, were opened in 1895, but after their closure in 1918, the company continued to survey the area and would mine wherever new mineral deposits were found. 
Then, in 1997, following a deal that the Coleman Mining Co. made with the Oakside Development Group, it began construction of its underground facility on the edge of the forest. Here's an excerpt from a local newspaper about this sale. Local Park Sells Land to Coleman Mining Co., the headline reads. Oakside Park has come to an agreement with the Coleman Mining Company regarding its acquisition of mineral rights for one of the state-owned park's mountains. President of Coleman Mining, James Walter, said he's glad the deal has gone through and that he couldn't be happier for the opportunities this new location will provide the company and the community. This new mining effort brought many jobs to the town of Oakside, but combined with the closure of the park as a tourist attraction, it simultaneously drove people away from the area too, turning parts of it into a ghost town. Nevertheless, the Coleman Underground facility operated for many years without incident, before its closure in 2010 after the most accessible and valuable minerals had been extracted from the site. Shortly afterwards, the company was disbanded, and following that, several ex-employees of the underground facility told stories of how they would sometimes hear strange crying noises coming from deep within the mines. Though many search parties were activated at the time, the source of the crying was never found, and so most people believe that these noises were hoaxes, possibly perpetrated by bored workers. After searching around the storage shelter for a couple of minutes, Lauren then proceeds to head deeper into the park, stopping to film a few shots of the lake as she goes. Spotting a light source near the edge of the water, Lauren then heads in that direction, where she discovers an overturned canoe lit by the bright red light of a fizzing emergency flare. Audibly confused by the presence of the flare, Lauren calls out for Kate again, and as she looks out into the dark depths of the forest, she spots something out of place. A sheet of A4 paper is attached to the side of a tree. As she approaches the tree, the video footage distorts slightly and short static hisses can be heard before the image then clears up as Lauren reaches for the piece of paper. The contents of that page are identical in style to those that covered Kate's bedroom, and this one included a basic drawing of a tree on the right-hand side, with the words, Leave Me Alone, written in large block capital letters that filled the rest of the empty space. Snatching the paper down from the tree, Lauren then turns and continues onwards, up a short hill and towards a large wooden sign that contained an illustrated map of the park. The solar-powered light built into the slanted roof of the sign's frame cast a low light over the faded image, which consisted of a criss-crossing loop of lines that marked the many circular trails in the area. Worryingly, scratched into the protective sheet of the plastic that covered that map was another sinister drawing of the stick figure with the triangular torso and long limbs, and pinned right next to that was another piece of paper. This one featured the unsettling words, Don't look! or it takes you. Lauren tears this page down as well, and now, surely convinced that she must be on Kate's trail, she once again heads off into the darkness, following a small thin path that winds its way down the hill towards the park's old abandoned information centre. At this point, the video file shows more signs of corruption, crackling and flickering wildly before settling down as she gets closer to the red brick walls of the information centre. There, she runs along the outer wall, searching for a way in, before, without warning, she spins around and screams. There, standing right behind her, and now fully illuminated by Lauren's flashlight, is a tall, slender man, his body seemingly stretched so that all of his proportions are eerily elongated. 
His facial features are non-existent. His head is merely a smooth oval shape covered in pure white skin, but there are slight concave indentations where his eye sockets should have been. Just like the monster in the old woodcut Versweiflung image found at the Matheson farmstead, this thing in the footage also has no mouth, and its limbs are long and spindly. But instead of having its internal organs on show, here it's inexplicably dressed from head to toe in what seems to be a black business suit, with a white shirt and red tie worn underneath. Static starts to disrupt the footage as Lauren turns and bolts past the entrance to the information centre and away from the beast, stopping a few metres away from the building where she then turns around to look for her pursuer. The camera shows nothing though and Lauren, either out of bravery or just sheer disbelief at what had just happened, doubles back and then enters the information centre, screaming out for Kate as she does so. There's barely enough time to take in the battered state of the information centre's interior, though, because, as Lauren rounds a corner, she immediately comes face to faceless face with the suited beast which is now towering over her. She only looks at it for a couple of seconds, before turning and running back out of the building and into the forest, but that was more than enough time for viewers of the video to be able to take one of the clearest full-length screen grabs of the creature to exist. The images shared from this moment quickly went viral, and subsequent message board discussions about them are the source of where the name of the Slenderman originated from. Thanks to people who have visited the information centre since these videos were found, and who have measured the height of the walls inside it, we also know that at that moment the monster stalking Lauren must have been standing at just under nine feet tall. From this point onwards, the static and distortion in the camera footage becomes even more frequent, and this has caused some people to theorise that the Slenderman has an odd effect on electronic equipment, causing massive interference to any audio or visual recording devices that it comes into contact with. As if backing up this theory, we soon see Lauren's footage warp once more, as she scrambles through the darkness and spots the Slenderman watching her from a distance, something that only serves to drive her further into the woods. There seems to be no logical or physical explanation for the monster's movements either. As Lauren runs through the trees, the Slenderman seems to be all around her all at once, sometimes in front of her, sometimes behind, sometimes close up and other times observing from afar. It's almost as if it's able to teleport from place to place somehow and rather than actually chasing Lauren, instead it seems to be toying with her teasing her and using its malevolent presence to instill as much fear as it possibly can on its victim. It seems likely, now that the Slenderman had seemingly finished with Kate, that Lauren had become its brand new plaything, and by following Kate's notes into the remains of Oakside Park, she had unwittingly wandered straight into the Slenderman's trap. This twisted game of cat and mouse lasts almost nine minutes, and during that time you can spot the Slenderman in the footage on multiple occasions, stalking Lauren from the shadows or pouncing on her as she turns a corner, all while it somehow manages to herd her towards more of Kate's notes. Finally, Lauren finds herself back where she started, underneath the corrugated roof of the Coleman Mining Company's storage shelter, where, after finding the eighth of Kate's pages, she hurriedly cowers between the metal shipping containers within. 
As Lauren's flashlight darts around her surroundings, searching for the thing that's hunting her, the silence in the footage creates a tension that's almost unbearable. But then, from out of nowhere, the soft crunch of footsteps on leaves can be heard behind her. Lauren spins around to face the noise and runs straight into the Slenderman, who can then be seen reaching out and trying to grab her by the hair before Lauren quickly manages to scramble away. During this moment, the camera footage becomes so distorted that the static on the audio track almost sounds like a scream. And it continues like this, occasionally causing the image to break up altogether as we see Lauren sprint through the woods and pass the Slender Man one more time, before the file ends abruptly with another digital shriek. I'm going to play that portion of the footage for you now so you can experience that audio for yourselves. But be warned, some of you may find the sounds that you're about to hear to be very disturbing indeed. File MVI 0911 starts with a close-up of grass swaying gently in the breeze. However, the long blades are running along the footage horizontally, revealing that the camera is laying on its side. The picture stays that way for approximately 11 minutes, before we hear Lauren slowly approach the camera and, as she picks it up, the image writes itself. Due to the amber light cast by an evening sun onto the rocks and wildlife around Lauren, it's estimated that around 14 hours have passed since the chase in the park, and in that time she had made it all the way from the depths of the forest right to the edge of the Rocky Mountains that run along its border. Far above her on the mountainside stands the Oakside Radio Tower, and as she zooms in on it with the camera to get a better look, the bright red aircraft warning beacon perched on its top comes into focus. As it does, the glow from the beacon flares out at the sides, forming the rough shape of an eye, perfectly demonstrating why the locals had given it their Lord of the Rings-inspired nickname. After taking a couple of minutes to orient herself, Lauren then begins walking towards the base of the mountain, filming her shadow on the grass for a couple of seconds as she makes her way through the autumnal wilderness. Around five minutes later, Lauren reaches the entrance to the Cullman Mining Company's underground facility. During construction of this facility, the company had repurposed an old railway tunnel that had been built into the side of the rock face in 1856, and they used this as an entrance to the mines, and now this crumbling brick exterior gave the site a distinct Victorian-era vibe. Lauren then makes her way towards the tunnel along the old road leading up to its arched opening. The concrete under her feet looks cracked and broken, and on either side of her lie rain-rusted pipes and the abandoned porter cabins that were once used as the offices for the payroll staff. Stopping for a second to film some close-ups of her surroundings, Lauren's attention is soon drawn to a poster hanging on the left-hand side of the tunnel entrance, and so she makes her way over to it. There, pinned to the old grey concrete blocks that formed the base of the tunnel entrance, is a yellowed missing persons poster for none other than Charlie Matheson Jr., the son of Charles and Diane, whose disappearance I covered in part one of this episode. The large black and white photo in the centre of the poster had been taken on the day of Charlie's 10th birthday party, and it shows the boy in happier times, looking directly at the camera with a wide smile spread across his face, totally oblivious to the horrors that would soon befall him. 
After filming the poster for a couple of seconds, Lauren turns, takes a deep breath and steps forwards towards the opening of the tunnel, instantly plunging the footage into darkness. At first, all you can hear are footsteps and the rustling of fabric as Lauren fishes for her flashlight, but then, with a click, a cone of light blooms out, bringing the dim interior of the tunnel into view. In front of Lauren are more rusted Cullman Mining Company shipping containers, along with an assortment of metal barrels that are stacked high at various intervals along the bare concrete walls of the tunnel. As Lauren inches forwards, all you can hear are the loud echoes of her footsteps, and these crunchy noises continue to reverberate around the dark passage, until, out of the blue, they're interrupted by what sounds like a low growl, combined with the unintelligible whispers of multiple people. Here's what that moment sounds like in the video. Hearing that audio is enough to make your hair stand on end, but for some reason Lauren doesn't seem to react to it at all. The current theory surrounding this is that, much like the way EVP or electronic voice phenomena in paranormal investigations works, this noise may have been something that only the camera had picked up on, and was therefore only audible when the recordings were viewed. This also plays into that idea that I mentioned earlier about the Slenderman being able to interfere with electronic equipment in some way, although it is unclear what the purpose for this particular interruption was, as these sounds die out quickly and are never heard on the files again. After a while, Lauren arrives at a door-sized opening set into the right-hand side of the tunnel wall, which she then enters to find a small dingy operations room beyond. Attached to the wall in front of her is a metal warning sign, detailing what to do in the event of a power loss emergency in the mines, while to her left there are banks of old control panels, complete with long-dead indicator clocks and an assortment of analogue readouts. Perched on top of one of these control panels is a torn piece of lined paper, and despite the damage to its edges and a few creases on its surface, it still looks relatively new, as do the words written upon its surface, which read... I am okay, Kate. The woods are beautiful. Please come see. I'm going to find you so you can see. It is so beautiful, Kate. These words are followed by the initials CR, indicating it was written by Kate's friend, Carl Ross. Now, it's not known for certain whether or not Lauren knew Carl personally, or even if she knew of him at all. Friends of Kate seem to think that she didn't, and this would explain why, after filming the note for a second or two, Lauren then calls out for Kate and not for Carl. The existence of this note is quite intriguing, though, as its contents are rather cryptic and its discovery in the tunnels could mean only one of two things. Either that Carl had written this note to Kate and, for some reason, she had brought it with her to this location, or that Carl himself was somewhere close by and had left the note at this spot for Kate to find. Whatever the circumstances surrounding this bizarre message, it was enough to convince Lauren that she was on the right track. And so, camera pointing forwards, she leaves the control room through a secondary door at the back of the room where she is instantly met by a surprising sight. There, on the concrete wall in front of her, are around 20 white arrows, scratched into the concrete with what is presumed to be a lump of rock or chalk. 
Lauren then spins to her right and we see more white arrows covering a section of the wall further away from her and there are a collection of even larger arrows roughly drawn onto the floor by her feet and they are all pointing towards a large open section of the facility. Illuminating one end of that cavernous room is the warning light from an old petrol generator, which seems to have stalled, and this is positioned next to the base of a large industrial elevator shaft. As Lauren approaches it, she continues to film her surroundings, zooming in on some hastily painted warnings on a couple of the surrounding metal walls. Get to the tower is painted in large letters on one section of wall, and the white paint used to create them can be seen dripping down the corrugated metal towards the floor. Another warning reads, need to get out, and this is covered in large splatters of paint, making it seem like the words were thrown onto the wall rather than painted. The final message seen on a wall at the far end of the room is the most disturbing though, and it simply says, no, no, no. Rather than being painted onto the wall, this one is scratched into the metal in a similar way to how the arrows were drawn onto the concrete, and multiple handwriting analysts have agreed that these messages seem to have been placed there by at least two different people. In one recent New York Times feature about the Slenderman videos, Eric Knudsen, a leading forensic handwriting analyst and graphologist, suggested that the painted warnings were likely left by Carl Ross, as the styling of the letters matches that of those from his note to Kate. The repetition of the scratches that make up the arrows and the nose, and the pressure used to create them, however, firmly suggests the presence of a different writer, who was likely in a severe state of mental distress or mania during their creation, possibly even suffering from a full-blown psychotic episode or an explosive attack of rage. Due to their similarity to the notes found in Kate's room and those that she had left hidden around the Oakside Park, it's highly likely that she was the one to have left these markings in the facility. Visibly worried now, Lauren turns back towards the centre of the room where the industrial elevator is located. The elevator itself is surrounded by a frame of latticed metal that runs upwards towards surface level somewhere at the top of the mountain. Its platform is wide enough to fit multiple shipping containers on, and when in operation, it was used to ferry mining equipment and supplies between different levels of the mines inside the complex. There are more of the frenzied arrows scratched into the wall behind the elevator's control panel, and when Lauren reaches it, she begins hammering at the buttons in an attempt to activate it. The platform remains stationary though, and so Lauren doubles back to the stalled generator next to the elevator and flicks the power switch on and off in an attempt to restore power. The generator quickly roars back to life, but as it does so, something seems to catch Lauren's attention and she spins away from the elevator and starts heading deeper into the facility, calling out Kate's name as she goes. After a few minutes of stumbling through the complex's cold grey corridors in relative silence, a noise other than Lauren's movements can be heard in the footage. It starts off as the light, echoey sound of distant running, but this noise rapidly starts to grow louder and louder as its source begins to approach Lauren's position. At first, it's hard to pinpoint where these hurried footsteps are coming from. The tight confines of the facility seem to play with the noise, and as it bounces around the concrete interior, it almost sounds as if there are multiple runners all heading towards Lauren at high speed. Then, all of a sudden, a figure runs out in front of Lauren from the left-hand side of the frame, and this causes Lauren to scream out loud. 
The runner is a young woman who is dressed in black jeans and a grey hooded top. The hood is pulled up over her head and she looks dishevelled and angry. Lauren instinctively points her torch at the woman who seems startled by the light, covering her eyes and falling backwards as the beam hits her face. Lauren shouts out a curse word and spins on her heels and begins to run back the way she came, towards the elevator and the prospect of safety. As Lauren sprints down the dark passageway, the sound of running from behind her begins to break through the sound of Lauren's own scrambled footsteps and panicked breathing, and as she reaches a corner, she turns around to see the strange woman racing full pelt towards her. Once again, Lauren aims the torch at the woman's face, but this time it does nothing, and instead of shrinking away from the light, the chaser collides with Lauren, knocking her to the floor, before quickly scrambling up and disappearing into the darkness. Holy f Kate, Lauren can be heard saying, before she clambers to her feet and resumes running towards the elevator. OK, it's time to pause briefly again because, as Lauren just exclaimed, her pursuer was indeed her childhood friend, Kate Hayes. This has not only been confirmed by people who have compared photographs of Kate with still frames of the woman from file MVI 0911, but also by a large number of Kate's friends who were interviewed after the fact. Each one said that, without a doubt, the hooded woman in the footage was Kate, but they also stressed that something seemed very, very wrong with her. In the clips where Kate is running, she looks dirty and unkempt, almost like she has been living rough for a long period of time. But it's the split-second close-up of Kate's face when she crashes into Lauren that really unnerves her friends. Due to the lack of light and the camera movement caused by the collision, it's hard to make out too many details. But in the clearest of frames, Kate looks pale, gaunt and strangely inhuman, almost like she's wearing a mask of her own face. Her skin is covered in lesions and scratches and mascara is running down over her cheeks, turning her eyes into inky black holes that almost seem to be leaking down her face. Her mouth is hanging wide open like she's frozen mid-scream, and this gives her expression a haunting look that comes across as a mixture of both rage and terror. There have been many theories about Kate's appearance during this moment in the video, but after studying similar cases from both before and after the events on the Slenderman videos, experts on the Slenderman phenomenon have come up with the term proxy to describe Kate's state of mind here. The theory behind this name goes like this. After the Slender Man chooses a victim, he will stalk and terrorise this person until they become so traumatised that, essentially, something inside their brain snaps. This weakens their mental resolve and ultimately allows them to fall under the direct control or influence of the Slender Man. In an excerpt from his book, The Dawn of Slenderman, author Louis Salison describes these proxies as people who serve as an in-between, i.e. a proxy, for the Slenderman. It is suspected that proxies do the actual physical work for Slenderman, such as creating and manipulating objects that can potentially lure more victims as needed. In this way, proxies are essentially little more than mind-controlled humans, and they do not gain any unnatural properties from the Slenderman other than a noticeable change in their behaviour. 
Very few proxies retain any of their personality while in forced servitude, as most adopt a separate personality altogether, something that normally ranges from the sadistic to the completely emotionless. It is highly likely that the Slender Man is also able to telepathically communicate or influence people without fully proxifying them, although it seems that children are the most susceptible to this method. The most common early evidence for this theory comes from a case in the 1800s, which centres around a Canadian family called the Mathesons. It is believed that the Slender Man used telepathic powers to lead a number of Matheson children away from their family and into the surrounding forest where they were eventually devoured. It is also highly likely that the Slender Man is also able to use his telepathy to influence victims who are in an emotionally damaged state, but who are not yet fully proxified. He will then often force these unfortunate people to commit terrible acts, such as tortures, murders or even suicides. Proxy or not, Kate's appearance in MVI 0911 is the one and only time that she is seen in the Slenderman videos, as in the final minutes of that file, Lauren reaches the elevator, activates the control panel and rides it to the top of the shaft, where the footage comes to an end. The final video in the collection, MVI 0912, is the most infamous of the lot, but it's also the most distorted as its footage is riddled with digital corruption throughout. At times, this makes it hard to work out exactly what is going on, but one thing is for certain. MVI 0912 also contains not only some incredibly graphic scenes, but also even more proof of the paranormal entity that has been haunting the Oakside area since at least the 1800s. The video begins with Lauren exiting the Coleman Mines via an ancient adit left over from one of the historical mining operations in the area, and as she does so, you can see her recoil from the heat of a raging fire that has caught hold of the woodland around her. As Lauren pans the camera from left to right to take in her surroundings, the footage begins to violently flicker and scramble, and then as she turns to face forward, we can see what looks like black tendrils rising up from out of the thick black smoke in front of her. They curl and stretch upwards and outwards, twisting and turning against the bright light of the flames, all while slowly extending towards Lauren. She spins on her heels and goes hell for leather in the opposite direction, running uphill through the fire as she does so. All around her, the scorched remains of trees crackle and crumble and topple over, blocking her path to freedom as the video footage continues to erupt in violent digital distortions. Any other sounds other than the screams of the glitching audio are drowned out by the intense noise of this inferno as Lauren scrabbles to find a safe way through the burning foliage. But then, just as a clear route seems to open up, the sky in front of her fills with thick tubular tentacles that snake through the air above the smoking trees in an unnatural alien manner. The footage once again bursts into a mixture of digital artefacts and angry static, and as Lauren hurtles deeper into the forest fire, the colour of the terrain around her takes up a dark red hue. Suddenly, the outside radio tower bursts into view in the top of the frame, and Lauren instinctively makes a beeline through the flames and up towards the tower's base. As she dashes towards it, she takes one last look at the tower from ground level with her camera before she bursts through the smouldering front door of the warehouse standing below it. 
The soot-covered brick walls of the warehouse interior are given a low red glow by the fire licking at their surface, and as Lauren sprints through the darkness of a smoke-filled hallway, the battery indicator baked into her footage begins to flash, signifying that it is about to run out of power. Lauren doesn't notice this, though, because as she reaches the end of the hallway and enters the room beyond, her attention is captured by the walls, which are covered in even more woeful warnings. There are so many words written in white paint and jumbled and squashed together on almost every surface that they're hard to read, especially with all the smoke and footage degradation going on, but most of the legible messages seem to be either apologies or cries for help. There's one note at the end of the room that stands out amongst all the others, though, and it's not just because it's written in large capital letters. As Lauren approaches the back wall, the words, I failed you, come into sharp focus in the footage, and there, lying just below them, is a hideously charred corpse, its flesh still smouldering and bubbling from the heat of the fire. Lauren continues to approach the corpse, and you can hear her gag as the smoke and the smell emanating from it hits the back of her throat. Instead of backing off, though, Lauren pushes on towards an object that is lying next to the burnt body. At first, it's obscured by the smoke, but as she gets closer, it becomes clear that this object is actually another camcorder, which Lauren then grabs and activates with her free hand. While we aren't able to watch what Lauren sees when she plays the contents of the camcorder, her camera does pick up the audio from that video file, and I will play that for you momentarily. But before I do that, however, I do need to issue a very big content warning. What follows is a recording of the last moments of the life of Carl Ross, and in it you will hear his screams as he douses himself in gasoline and then sets himself alight. As you might expect, this is extremely disturbing, and so, if you wish to avoid listening to it, I'd advise skipping this podcast forwards about 45 seconds from this point. Here we go. At the start of that audio, you may have noticed that there were two voices present. Those voices belong to both Carl Ross and Kate Hayes. Although a lot of the words are garbled, it seems that, just like both Charles and Frieda Matheson, Carl was attempting to break the Slenderman's curse by burning those affected by it, which in this case was Kate and himself. However, just before Carl ignites the gasoline, Kate can be heard changing her mind and running from the room. Carl then proceeds to beg for forgiveness, before finally setting himself on fire and inadvertently causing the blaze that was now enveloping the warehouse and the surrounding wilderness. 
It's theorised that, after running from Carl, Kate then decided to backtrack along her route and ended up taking the Coleman cargo elevator back down into the underground mining facility, which is where, soon afterwards, she literally bumped into Lauren. While the contents of Carl's tape are shocking to the extreme, it's actually the final few seconds of MVI 0912 that truly stick in everyone's mind. As the terrifying audio from Carl's recording cuts out, Lauren's footage becomes drenched in a deathly silence. It stays like that for one or two seconds before a startlingly loud crash rings out from the back of the room. This is followed by a low guttural roar, which grows in strength until, out of the darkness, a ghostly white, severely malnourished figure rushes towards Lauren, arms outstretched. And then, just as the figure reaches her, with one final screeching glitch, the footage goes black and the file ends. Here's that moment for you to listen to now. A couple of days after the fire at the Oakside Radio Tower had burnt out, contractors who were brought in to demolish the ruins of the warehouse discovered the burnt remains of an adult male underneath the rubble in one of the back rooms. In a subsequent autopsy, dental records were used to officially identify these remains as those of missing Oakland resident Carl Ross. No other remains were found at the site. While search teams scoured the surrounding areas, including the Coleman mines, for many months afterwards, no sign of Lauren Hadley or Kate Hayes has ever been found, and as such, their whereabouts are still unknown. However, the police have stated that, while both their missing persons cases remain open, the pair are now presumed to be dead. But this all leaves us with one last question. Who or what can be seen attacking Lauren at the end of file MVI 0912? Well, although this has never been confirmed by official police sources, amateur sleuths covering the case have called upon the skills of age progression artists to compare and contrast footage of Lauren's attacker with the historical images of missing Oakside children. Age progression artists are highly qualified professionals that normally age up the photos of long-missing children to show how they would look as adults. In this case, however, the age progression artists actually age the images from the video downwards, and, going by the bone structure around the cheekbones and jawline, multiple experts believe that the person who attacked Lauren in the warehouse on that day was none other than a heavily proxified 23-year-old Charles Matheson Jr., also known as Charlie. Now, I wish I could say that this was the end of the story of the Slenderman, but unfortunately, reports of children going missing in the Oakside area still persist to this very day. And not only that, but they also seem to be growing in number and spreading too. Sightings of the Slenderman and reports of mysterious child abductions are being reported not just in other areas of Canada, but also around the world. Most worrying of all, though, is that these events seem to be centred near or around places that have had the highest concentrations of Slenderman video views. Could the viral spread of these videos also be spreading the Slenderman's curse? Has a once-ancient entity now gone digital? 
As always, I'll of course keep you updated if I hear more on this story. But if after finishing this episode, you too begin to experience anything at all that's out of the ordinary, please alert the authorities as quickly as possible and make sure you avoid going anywhere by yourself. Your life and the safety of your friends and family may just depend on it. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Virtual Criminality. If you enjoyed it, do follow at Virtual Crime Pod on Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you can to hear the next episode as soon as it's uploaded. Share it with your true crime stroke video game loving friends. And if you're feeling really generous, please do leave a review on your podcast app of choice. They all help to boost the visibility of the show. Oh, and did you know that Virtual Criminality is also a video series? I've used video game footage to turn every episode of Virtual Criminality into a true crime video series, and they're all available to watch right now over on my YouTube channel, Platform 32, a link to which I've included in the description for this episode. Anyway, thanks once again for listening. I'm aiming to be back at the end of next month with episode 4 of Virtual Criminality, so hopefully... I'll see you then.